welcome to T21 Mom. Hi friends and welcome to the T21 Mom podcast. My name is Mary and I'm your host. And this is episode 91. And today uh, I'm talking with licensed clinical mental health counselor, Rose Reef. And we're going to talk about something that I don't really hear a lot about, grief. I really loved this conversation with Rose. Her practice is actually centered around counseling those with disabilities such as Down syndrome, but also the parents and caregivers of kids with special needs. I thought I had more or less dealt with Ainsley's diagnoses, autism and Down syndrome, but I found that the grief was still appearing, you know, often at times when I wasn't prepared for it. And I learned so much from Rose and I'm sure that you will too. So let's go take a listen. Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I have the privilege of speaking with Rose Reef, who is a licensed clinical mental health counselor, a certified rehabilitation counselor, and also a qualified developmental disability and mental health professional. (laughs) That's a long title. Welcome, Rose. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. I'm glad to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. I saw you at the retreat in Washington in September, and everyone I spoke to, uh, including myself, really loved your presentation that you gave there. And in my little group from the retreat, I was asking them for suggestions for the podcast, and they a number of them suggested to have you on. So I'm really grateful that you could come on today. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was such a such an amazing retreat, such a great group of moms to speak with. So it's good to be here and continue the conversation. Oh, wonderful. So, you know, before we get into what we're talking about today, can you talk, tell me a little bit about you? Sure. So my story is, I knew from a very young age that I, I wanted to work with folks with disabilities. And so basically straight out of college was working, you know, during college worked in group homes, providing direct support. And then, you know, I think a few months after I graduated was offered a position managing group homes. Um, and then, you know, did case management, I wound up running an independent living program. And I really loved that work. But in the course of it, after doing it for about 10 years or so, I started to realize there were just not enough um, and not enough, you know, good mental health supports for adults with disabilities that Mm -hmm. after the age of 18, it was sort of, you know, that cliff, right? All the services dropped off and there just weren't enough supports for folks. So after giving it some consideration, I realized, you know, this is something I'm passionate about. There's no reason that I couldn't be that person. And I was really lucky. I live in North Carolina. I had gone to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad. And it turned out within the medical school at UNC, there actually was a graduate counseling program specifically geared towards working with folks with disabilities. Oh, wow. um, I know, right? <laughs> so I was extremely fortunate, got to go back to Carolina, got my master's degree. And pretty much right out of grad school, started my private practice. And I really intended just to work with disabled adults. That was, you know, who I set out to work with. But after about, I don't know, six months or so being in practice, I started to get phone calls from parents. And mm. they would say, you know, I, I heard you speak somewhere, or I read some blog posts that you wrote. And I feel like you just understand my needs better than other therapists. I've tried to explain it to people, and they think I'm 
you know, being histrionic or blowing things out of proportion Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about kind of the lifelong struggle that this is. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, you know, this is this other group that has an unmet mental health need, right? That, you know, it's not just disabled adults, but it's parents raising kids with disabilities in a world that is not set up to support or appreciate their child. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, gosh, that was 10 years ago. And so in the 10 years that I've been in practice, those are the two groups that, that I've worked with. And, you know, my, my caseload, if you will, is about 50, 50 split between disabled adults and parents raising disabled kids. Wow. That's wonderful. And I think there's a real need for someone with your expertise and experience because it, I think it's really challenging to find a therapist who understands our needs. And like you said, it's the lifelong Mm -hmm. journey of parenting a child with a disability. Yeah. So, you know, I feel as a special needs parent that we just have so much on our plate than a typical parent and our mental health can often be precarious at the best of times. But what I kind of wanted to talk to you about today is grief. You know, it's something that I don't think is often spoken about. And I feel as a special needs parent, we have grief about a lot of things that most people probably don't understand or even think about. Like, I don't think it's kind of like the hush hush topic. You know, you don't really hear a lot of parents talking about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's because when people do try to broach that topic, their grief is misunderstood. People Mm -hmm. say, well, that just means you don't love the child you have and you aren't accepting of, um, you know, the the son or daughter that you were given, right? And, you know, this is something obviously that comes up a ton with Mm -hmm. the clients that I work with. So I've, you know, it's something I've researched a lot and really try to understand. And this is what I think gets missed in the conversation, that that grief is not a sign that you're doing something wrong and not a sign that you don't love your child. What it is a sign of is an uncomfortable but necessary process that you have to go through when you are told that the child you have is going to be very different from the child that you anticipated. Mm-hmm. And you know, to the people who say that you're wrong to feel it, I would say those people don't understand brain science very well because here's what happens when we know that there's a child coming into our life, whether biologically or through adoption, right? Any, any way that anytime that we're gearing up to become a parent, our brain starts to give us very rich fantasies. Uh, we start to have daydreams. We start to catch ourselves imagining all the things we're going to do with that child, right? The adventures we're going to go on, mm-hmm. the special moments we're going to have, all the things. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that daydreaming serves a really important evolutionary purpose because when you finally get that new baby, they are this, you know, screaming, smelly, <laughs> sleeping, messy little potato. And they don't give you a lot of feedback until you, you know, go a few weeks through all the crying and all the messes and all the lack of sleep. And then you finally start to get those first few little smiles. But we need all those really rich visions of the kid we're going to have to help us get through the very difficult newborn phase. This is, this is the purpose of that, you know, from a biological standpoint. Mm -hmm. So when we are told, you know, the the moment or within days of our child being born that, oh, this child will not be riding a bicycle. 
with you. This child may never walk, may never speak. You know, this child will not be reading or writing, right? When mm-hmm. we hear any of those things, it's it's just a blow to all of those daydreams and fantasies that we had. And so the grief that parents, you know, are really talking about is that process of letting go of all of those ideas of, of what was going to be, again, that served a really important function and kind of rewriting what the future might look like and getting acclimated to, okay, how can I go on adventures with a child who may never speak or may never walk or all of the mm-hmm. things that all the doctors like to tell you your kid can't do that they'll probably wind up doing, um, mm-hmm. you know? So that is actually a lot of what the grief is at the start. Mm-hmm. And then it changes as time goes on, because then what happens is parents start to compare themselves to other mm-hmm. people, right? Mm-hmm. And again, this is all, you know, pretty well documented in research. When we look at, you know, is the mental health of parents raising kids with special needs different from the mental health of parents raising neurotypical kids. And it is because Mm -hmm. there's this cyclical grief that happens when, you know, everybody's kid is, you know, riding the bike for the first time or starting to read phonetically or, you know, made the baseball team, graduated from high school, got married, right? All of these life events. um, If you're watching friends and family and their Mm -hmm. kids are experiencing them and your child is maybe doing them on a different timeline or, or not doing them at all. It's really hard. And so that grief kind of comes back and, and cycles back through. And again, reminds you of all the things that, you know, your child is not going to do in the way that you imagine them doing them. Yes, you totally nailed it because lately that's a lot of those things is what I'm feeling now is Mm -hmm. my daughter's 10 Mm -hmm. and the gap keeps getting wider and wider. And she also has a dual diagnosis of autism. Mm -hmm. So I'm dealing with those challenges as well, because she's definitely more heavily impacted by autism than she ever will be with Down syndrome. And I don't even think her autism is really that severe compared to a lot of other children with a dual diagnosis. But yeah, it's like missing out on all those things. And now with Mm -hmm. social media everywhere, you, you see it like all day, every day about what other people's families are doing, mm-hmm. what their kids are doing. And you're thinking, hmm, I'm wondering if that will ever happen for my girl. So how do parents, how, how do we deal with that? Like you said, it's cyclical and that mm-hmm. like, and, and that's so true. Like you, like I, I felt like I'd handled the diagnosis of her having down, down syndrome, mm-hmm. but maybe I haven't, or it's maybe it's like lifelong. It just kind of comes and goes. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. 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 I, I think the challenge for parents is to learn, you know, what are those points that are especially painful for you Mm -hmm. and learn to anticipate them and give yourself grace within them. So, you know, I, I work with some parents who are, you know, really strong into academia, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, when they had those daydreams about their child, it was, you know, very heavily focused on graduation, getting Mm -hmm. into college, that kind of thing. So now, you know, having a child who's probably going to get a certificate, not a diploma, having a child who might go to a trade school, but might not even be able to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we talk about, okay, it's, it's graduation season, you know, your social media scroll is going to be filled 
with people whose kids are graduating and all those mm-hmm. pictures of caps and gowns, you know, how can we help you manage that? Do you need to, you know, maybe just take a break from social media for the month of May? Do you need to maybe unfollow certain people for 30 days? Do you need to, you know, develop a little accountability plan with yourself of I'm only going to go on, you know, at the end of the day, if it's been a good day and I haven't had anything to drink, I mean, really getting (laughs) into the weeds of what sets me off (laughs) right? Um, and what makes it hard for me to see this. And then, you know, balancing that with, you know, yes, I don't want to bring unnecessary grief on myself, but I also want to be a good aunt to my nieces and nephews who are graduating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how can I give space for my grief? Um, while at the same time, not taking away my sense of, of celebration and pride for the people in my life who are achieving those accomplishments, you know, and, and I, I think that's one of the most helpful things I can coach parents to do is to see the benefit of sounds silly, maybe, but setting aside time to be sad on purpose, right? Because if you make space and time for your grief, you know, I have time to think about this tomorrow. I have set aside time to take a bath and cry if I need to. So I don't need to let that wash over me today and spoil today. Um, you know, when I'm trying to accomplish other things, cause I have, you know, thought about my need to grieve and made that plan with myself. Some people, you know, kind of struggle with that idea, mm-hmm. but once they, once they lean into it, they, they wind up seeing it actually helps them feel much less controlled by their emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're able to, you know, experience them without being overcome by them. I like that. I had never thought of that. Yeah. Almost like scheduling time to be sad. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, like some people probably would think it sounds silly, but I think if you give yourself that space, then it helps you to, I think, work your, your way through it. Mm Yeah. Okay. I, I, it's it's not like you're trying to tamp it down and keep mm-hmm. it in the box. It's like just yeah. that's that's not the box we're exploring today. But I have time to dig into it another day. Yeah. Exactly. So when you get the diagnosis of Down mm-hmm. syndrome, mm-hmm. either prenatally or at birth, I had a prenatal diagnosis. It is it is life changing, sure. and you never forget that moment. Like. I can remember it so clearly and I'm sure every other parent can too. Like, what do you suggest people do when they get this news other than don't Google because that's what everyone does. Right. Right. Um, Gosh, if I could just, you know, be there in the room and throw up the red flag, don't do that. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dr. Google is not your friend right now. I think one really important thing for context here, if I could give new parents this message is to know the doctors delivering that information to you very likely received a lot of their education around Down syndrome um, several years ago. And even now that information may be outdated. Mm-hmm. Down syndrome for, you know, as, as it's a diagnosis that's been around for such a long time, but what that diagnosis means has changed so dramatically, um, certainly in the 20 years that I've been in the field, but even in the last 10, you know, mm-hmm. And I, I think we see that in reflected in so many different things. I mean, certainly the huge increase in life expectancy mm-hmm. that people with Down syndrome have experienced over the last few decades just reflects better medical treatment, better investment in you know their quality of life, um, 
you know, from medical providers, from schools, from, you know, all walks of life. Even, you know, the other day I was explaining to my daughter, um, there was a, you know, bagger at the grocery store that we frequently joke with and she has Down syndrome. And, (laughs) you know, I was trying to give her some context that when I was growing up, people would have lost their minds if someone with Down syndrome had bagged their groceries and people Mm -hmm. would have had a very strong negative reaction and said things like, don't touch my food, you'll, you'll spoil it. Mm -hmm. Um, And trying to help her understand that that's how much the world has changed for folks with Down syndrome over the last few decades. So again, for parents getting that, that new diagnosis, you know, knowing that even things that they believe about Down syndrome may be quite outdated. I can't tell you how many times I talk to a parent who has just received a diagnosis. And one of the first things they say almost inevitably is that, you know, the pediatrician or the, you know, gynecologist, whoever told me my child will never ride a bike. Hmm. And (laughs) I I have a collection in my office of clients, kids riding bikes, you know, that they've given me permission to share with others. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's such a common thing that, that, you know, a lot of physicians believe that kids with Down syndrome don't have the gross motor skills to do, but now with great occupational therapy and increased understanding of, you know, their proprioceptive needs, kids with Down syndrome can learn how to ride a bike. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's one very small, but I think, you know, illustrative example that I wish parents knew that it's important to get the most up-to-date information, um, you know, and sometimes I will encourage them, you know, especially if it's a prenatal diagnosis, I'll mm-hmm. say, Hey, go watch a special Olympics baseball game. Just go sit in the stands and watch the way that those athletes interact with each other, support mm-hmm. each other, you know, how hard they work at their sport and tell me that that's not, you know, the spirit you want in your kid. Yeah. Right. You know, go spend time with adults who have down syndrome and you will have a lot of your anxieties, I think, you know, managed for you through that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I, I took me a, a little while to get, you know, to come to acceptance of it. And, yeah. and for me personally, as I've said many times on my podcast is I'm so glad I had a prenatal diagnosis and everyone I ask if they had a birth or a prenatal diagnosis, they always say the way they got it was the preferred way. Hmm. I, Cause I know I wouldn't have done well with a, a birth diagnosis. So, it, you know, it just gave me time to prepare and, and ce- yeah. celebrate her birth, yeah. you know, which is what I wanted. Yeah. You know, and a few people said to me, they said, what do you do when, you know, like people process the news of, you know, the Down syndrome diagnosis differently. Like some people, you know, can be relatively okay with it. Mm-hmm. And others have such a difficult time. Like you often hear of, you know, maybe one partner is much more accepting, often the mother, mm-hmm. and then uh, her partner, her husband, is having a really difficult time accepting that that news. How do you deal with that? Mm, How- that like difference in yeah, yeah. I mean, I think to know that it's normal is helpful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so whether that's talking to other parents or reading books, reading blog posts, watching YouTube videos. I mean, the great, again, so many parents are making their stories accessible to others now. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really doing so much, you know, podcasts like this, right. Mm -hmm. You know, just to reduce that feeling of we're isolated, we're alone. We're the only couple that feel this way when the truth is, I think every couple acclimates to an unexpected diagnosis in different ways Mm -hmm. with varying degrees of acceptance. So to know, you know, this is normal, maybe look at 
something else in your history as a couple where you've, you know, come to a conclusion in different ways and different times and, and just said, you know, the, the best thing we can be here is kind to each other because we are both trying to do something together, but also having to do it as individuals, right? Mm -hmm. So there are no wrong feelings. And it's usually not true that people have just one feeling about it, right? What's difficult about that, you know, kind of process of acceptance is that it can be such a all over the map journey of, Mm -hmm. you know, feeling emotions that feel like they should be in conflict with each other within the same day, within the same minute sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how can I be so proud of my child that they're taking their first steps and so sad that they're not yet speaking, you know, Um, and experiencing Mm -hmm. all of those things at the same time. And so knowing that, you know, whatever your partner is going through is probably very similar to what you're going through, just on a different scale and in a different time frame. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful advice because I have had I've heard that many times, mm-hmm. where it's the, you know the partner is having a really challenging time accepting the diagnosis, and someone told me that they will never get over it, like the of their child having a disability because it's they felt it was like a lifelong grieving process, but is this how it is? Like lifelong grief? Or is um, that individual? I would, I would hope that person might have enough hope that things could be different, that they would maybe seek out counseling okay. <laughs> because I don't, I don't think it has to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of my work with parents centers around values for parents who are struggling with acceptance. And I really, you know, have some exercises I like to do with them to encourage them to explore which of your, you know, personal values, the things that most inform your own choices, your own behavior, your beliefs, feel really threatened by this diagnosis, right? Um, and usually, again, when we see parents having different reactions, that that's what we're getting at, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe, uh, you know, a dad who really values humor and athletic strength. And, Mm -hmm. and those are things that he strives for in his own life. He's told he's going to have a child who's hypotonic and so can't do a lot of, you know, physical exercises. Um, And he's told he's going to have a child who, you know, is going to have delayed speech and limited comprehension. And so probably won't be able to make witty jokes. Right. Mm -hmm. So his values feel really threatened by the diagnosis and he feels really, unsure of how best to support or love someone who doesn't share those same values. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I do a lot of work around that with the parents I support when they're feeling that ongoing struggle to help them see, you know, yes, it's okay to grieve that you and your child may not share these values and, you know, what are the values that you might share? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're a woman who really values your, your independence and you're told you're going to have a child who's dependent on people your whole life or their whole life, uh, yeah, that, that could be really jarring and upsetting. Mm-hmm. But then looking at what might independence mean in the context of your child's abilities, right? And mm-hmm. how can we redefine independence in a way that suits them? And I think all parents of all kids do this, but it's just much more salient when your child is disabled and you're told there are specific limitations to what they can be able to do. 
I remember several years ago, this one woman that I met, her grief, I had never met anyone whose grief over the diagnosis was so uh, severe, I guess, for lack of a better word, because her daughter was about to turn two. And I said to her, why don't you have like a little birthday party for her? And her response was, why would I want to celebrate the worst day of my life? Yeah, I mean, I know it's better for her now. And her daughter's older. I think she's probably eight or nine now. But like when I heard that, it was it was really heartbreaking to think that there are some people in that depths of despair. Like they love their child, but the grief is so mm. intense that they can't celebrate their birthday, which it just it made me really sad yeah. to hear that. And is there like a way to... I guess, normalize the grief process. Like, you know, someone mentioned to me, like people feel you should just get over it and move on. You sort of touched on it in the beginning, Mm. but do you have any suggestions for people like on how they can do that? Or is it just a constant work in process? (laughs) Um, I think, you know, a lot of pop psychology tends to tell us to focus on the positive. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is um, we humans are pretty good at knowing when we're being told a line and told a story, Mm -hmm. even if we ourselves are the ones (laughs) trying to tell ourselves the story. So, you know, like, I'll talk to parents who will say, I don't understand. I'm so sad about this still, but I've been doing a gratitude journal and I've been, you know, saying daily aphorisms to make myself feel better. Right. Like I'm trying to stay positive, right. Stay positive is the message. Mm-hmm. Um, I am much more in favor of finding perspective rather than forced positivity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that sounds like, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that my child is learning to make themselves a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I'm sad that this may be one of the only foods they ever learn to prepare for themselves because anything more complicated might be too dangerous for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So acknowledging both sides of what's going on that, okay. you know, within almost every interaction we have with our kids, there's some good and some not so good. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm glad that my child is, you know, independent enough to carry a wallet with a few dollars in it. And I'm terrified that one day they'll be taken advantage of financially. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we, when we allow ourselves to fully experience and name again, like all of those seemingly conflicting feelings that we might have at the same time, I think it just makes acceptance so much easier because it's easy to see that, you know, these situations are going to happen mm-hmm. regardless of how we feel about them because our feelings might be all over the place. So when we tell ourselves that our feelings make sense, mm-hmm. everything just gets easier. Okay. And I think that's exponentially true when we're hearing that echoed from other people, um, which is again, why I love doing retreats like the one um, in DC, why I love coming on podcasts like this one, because I think it just helps people normalize the the difficulty and Mm -hmm. know that they are not alone. Mm -hmm. um, And that how they are feeling is 
okay. It's normal. Um, and at the same time, if they have hope that they could feel better about things, they probably could, you know, whether yeah. through a support group or counseling mm -hmm. or, or whatever they choose to do for themselves. 100%. Yes. I, and which is one of the reasons I love going to the retreat mm -hmm. is I get to meet all these other mamas who are walking the same road as me. You know, our kids are all different ages, but it's so fantastic to have that. And, and we just get each other and, you know, it's, it's awesome. And I love it. And I love all those ladies. They're just amazing. And, you know, one of the things like for me, like I had felt that I had, as I said, I felt like I had dealt with the grief of my daughter having Down syndrome and she's 10 now, but at about five and a half, she received the dual diagnosis of autism mm -hmm. and receiving the secondary diagnosis was almost as bad as getting the Down syndrome diagnosis and the delivery of it was just absolutely appalling. Oh. Yeah. And I, it almost felt like I was starting over mm. and what can parents do when this happens? It's, it, feels like it's almost compounding things and, and how best can we deal with this? Like dealing with this secondary diagnosis and mm. whether it's autism or something else, like, mm -hmm. as I said, you know, I feel her autism impacts her far more greatly than mm -hmm. down syndrome. And I feel like if she just didn't have autism, like we would be doing this, this, and this, mm. and, you know, and I don't know if we'll ever do this or this, or this, this, and this. Yeah. No. So here's the thing about diagnosis. And I say this and people are always like, how can you say that when you're, you specialize literally in helping people who have diagnoses. But I believe that a diagnosis is only helpful in so much as it is helpful. Mm -hmm. And that sounds really basic probably, but I want you to imagine that you've never seen a Kiwi. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I put this little brown fuzzy thing in front of you and I say, that's a Kiwi. Mm -hmm. Well, you're like, well, I don't, what do I do with it? I don't know what that is. Is Do I throw it? What is it? Right. But if I say to you, Hey, this is a fruit and it's brown and fuzzy on the outside. You don't want to eat the outside, but if you cut it open, it's this beautiful green color and it has these, you know, really crunchy seeds and it's delicious. And, you know, you can eat it raw or here's some recipes you can use it in. Um, I've given you a ton more information now, right? And you understand mm -hmm. what to do with this little brown fuzzy thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that it's very similar when we approach diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know your daughter. I couldn't pick her out of a lineup, right? Mm -hmm. But if I say to you, she's autistic, that doesn't really tell me much. But if I say to you, I'll bet your daughter really thrives when situations match her expectation. And I'll bet that she really struggles when people um, change plans on her, when their communication is not 100% concrete and clear, um, but that if she knows what is expected of her and what to expect from the situation, I bet she does pretty well. And mm -hmm. I bet she really you know, wants to be liked by others, but sometimes goes about asking for that in, in ways that others do not always understand, mm -hmm. right? So again, I, I don't know your kiddo, but I bet I've just described her pretty well. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. it's the difference between saying autism to a parent who's terrified of that word and has no mm -hmm. idea what it means yeah. um, versus just saying, hey, here's some things that are probably going to be true about your child because of the way we suspect her brain is wired. Right. So. And I'm 
forgetting the original question that led us down the path. But, you know, I think kind of, yeah, how do you get used to a diagnosis? You realize it's only helpful if it's helpful. If it helps you get services you need, great. Mm -hmm. That was a helpful day to have a diagnosis. But you already know your child, especially if you're getting a diagnosis later in life, right? So Mm -hmm. look for the ways that it supports your understanding Mm -hmm. of your child. Look for the ways that it can help others understand like, hey, you know, with Down syndrome, we said visuals are important. Now that we've added autism to the mix, visuals are super important, right? Mm -hmm. This is a kid who's going to thrive when things are presented visually, and that's paired with the verbal explanation. If we just give her the verbal, it's probably not going to be enough. And we're going to see meltdowns, right? We're going to see her react to that physiologically because she will be overwhelmed by the way we're presenting information, Mm -hmm. right? So just allowing it to you know, let you lean into what you already know is true of your child, I think is, is the way that diagnoses are helpful. Yes. I remember when I first got the diagnoses, the, the, the diagnosis of her having autism, it wasn't really a huge surprise. Uh, but I remember someone told me you're still walking out with the same child. It's just now you have a, a label or a diagnosis that, will now help you to get more services for her. It just, mm-hmm. you know, no one wants to get the, the secondary diagnosis of autism. Like you said, autism is scary because again, you're scared of what you don't know. And, you know, same as Down syndrome. Most people are scared of Down syndrome because they don't know anything about Down syndrome. And I think it's also the same with autism, but yeah, definitely more impacting, I think, than, than Down syndrome. Uh, so does grief ever really go away or is it more about coming to acceptance and adapting to our situation? Like, I feel like it's kind of always sort of lingering in the background, but, and then maybe something will happen and it kind of, you know, ebbs and flows I find, Mm -hmm. but. Yeah. So again, I think part of that is, is learning yourself, learning what is most difficult for you and learning to anticipate and care for yourself in those moments, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think part of it too, you know, so a lot of people are familiar with like the five stages of grief, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, some newer research that doesn't get as much press, but that's just as valid, has taught us that there's actually a sixth um, component of working through grief, and it is finding meaning, right? that when we can find the reason for our suffering, when we can understand how it changed us in, in important and beneficial ways to mm-hmm. have gone through this grief experience, you know, we are just so much more able to find peace with the situation. Mm-hmm. And so again, like values work is something I like to do a lot of, but then also finding purpose and meaning in the grief and seeing ways that it has made us Mm-hmm. more adaptable, more resilient, more aware of our own abilities as parents. Mm-hmm. That is what I think is, is, you know, some of the most helpful things to do to work through that grief. I I really love that actually. Yes. I, that's a little bit mind blowing. I never thought of it really that way. So It's one of those things in psychology that's like, oh, when you say it out loud, well, that's very obvious, but it took a lot of people to (laughs) research it and put it together. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely beneficial. You know, as I kind of mentioned, like there, 
like as my daughter gets older and the gaps kind of get wider and I wonder we ever going to hit those milestones. Like, I guess, what do you kind of do then Mm. when you think "Mm, we might not get there? And it's kind of like going back to that original, almost like when you know that you're having a child or you're getting a child and you have all those visions of what your life's going to be. I mean, nobody has a, a, a magic ball to see what the future holds, but you kind of have an idea of what it might hold. And then you find out while well, your child has Down syndrome and, and then you find out later she has autism. But like when you really, I guess, I don't know what I'm really trying to say, but just when you realize like some of those, I guess, maybe life milestones just aren't going to happen. Okay. So I would, you know, if this were a client coming into my office saying, <laughs> saying these things, yeah. I would encourage them to explore that. What if, all right, what if, what if your child is never able to live in their own apartment, right? Mm-hmm. What if they always need some level of support, either from family or paid caregivers? What if, right? And we'll talk about, you know, the scary things that that would mean. And then eventually at some point in the conversation, you run out of scary things <laughs> and you start to find things that aren't so bad about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Or what if my child never gets married? Right. And we, we talk about all the, all the things that parents are fearful of and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And then we look at, well, let's look at all the people in your life who aren't married by choice or circumstance. Are they bad people? Are they unlovable people? No, of course not. Right. Mm -hmm. They're, they're wonderful people. They're just not married for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and looking at, you know, what are, what are you afraid that it means? And usually that's one that, that comes up a lot. So usually, you know, that my child will be unlovable. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of bust that myth, you know, by looking at the evidence and saying, well, actually there are plenty of very lovable people who just don't happen to be married and Mm -hmm. you know, that's okay. Right. And then sometimes I'll share with them that like recently I did some premarital counseling for two people with down syndrome, uh, who were planning their wedding and it was amazing. So, you know, diagnosis alone, it does not dictate what life's going to hold for you. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's a whole mix of yeah, let's, let's think about the worst case scenario that I'm so afraid of. Let's Mm -hmm. question what it really means again, with that kind of like eye towards our values. Um, and then let's remind ourselves of all the way that like our fears are real, but they're not necessarily true. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. This is, this is really awesome. Thank you. (laughs) And what is the best way to sort of deal or handle feeling guilty for having grief or returning grief. Yeah. I, I think, again, I'm a big fan of telling yourself the story of why it makes sense that you feel the way that you do Mm -hmm. when you can normalize it for yourself, when you can validate it for yourself. Um, it becomes so much less scary to talk about it with other people. It becomes less important somehow to, to have it validated by others because you know that it makes sense to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I have a client who's an Olympic athlete who has a child who's never going to walk. Right. And so it's like, yeah, it makes sense why that makes you sad. 
Yeah. You know, your, your ability to be fast was, you know, and use your legs was literally like your life's work and you're one of the best in the world at it. And you have a child who will not share that. Mm -hmm. Right. But then again, you know, we kind of bust that a little bit. Well, does that mean your child will never strive for things and achieve things and have physical strength? No, that's not what that means at all. They are independent of each other. Um, so again, like telling yourself why it makes sense, but then also kind of questioning the the truth of what you're saying. I think it's a two-pronged approach, if you will. Okay. Okay. And so are there, you kind of touched on like a gratitude journal, but like, are there sort of strategies to help us sort of focus on the positives when we're mm. feeling really down and negative or where there just feels like there's a layer of underlying grief with mm. everything? Yeah. So again, I, I think it's super critical not to lean in just to the positive. So one of my very favorite exercises to encourage people to do is just, you know, find some time that you can roughly be consistent with. I know your life is parents, special <laughs> needs parents is all over the place. So maybe it's just, you know, once a day, sometime after lunch, right? Even if that's as specific as you can get, that you'll take one minute, literally 60 seconds, and I'm going to look myself in the mirror so I can see myself say these things. And I'm going to say, you know, one thing that happened today that made me sad, one thing that happened today that made me glad. Okay. It could be that simple. Or mm -hmm. one thing my child did that I found really frustrating and I didn't understand. Or, and one thing that my child did that made me really proud and made me smile. You know, and it, it, it's kind of unique to each parent, right? Of course. What those two things are for them. But but find a way to say both and, and find that balance that's meaningful for you and acknowledge that this is a situation that is not black and white. It is, you know there are moments of pride and joy. There are moments of sadness and grief. And when we focus too much on one to the exclusion of the other, it's kind of like that old story of, you know, which wolf gets stronger, the one you feed, right? So we need right. to make sure we're paying attention to both. Yes, that's, yes. I hadn't really thought of it quite like that, but you're right. Like about the wolf um, mm -hmm. analogy that that's, that's what's going to happen if that's all you're going to focus on. Right. Is, is that's going to overtake your life and, and your mindset, I think. And so, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but do you have any kind of tips that we as special needs parents can use to help navigate the cycle of grief throughout our children's lives? Because there's going to be those times where it kind of creeps in, or like you said, mm -hmm. like, uh, it's graduation time or prom or, or what have you Yep. like strategies or tips that we can <laughs> use. Yeah. Uh, it would be no imaginary finish lines. Okay. And what I mean by that is again, kind of our human brains like to tell us that, you know, once X happens, then everything will get easier. Right. So, mm -hmm. all right. If I've been really, you know, kind of overwhelmed by grief around the idea that my child's not going to graduate, well, then once they're done with school, whatever that looks like, then I'll be done with grief. And that's not really true. Right. So, kind of knowing that, hey, okay, I understand that statistically speaking, this may be a feeling that I have to deal with, you know, over time and it'll mm -hmm. continue, it'll like pop up again and again. And I just need to be prepared for that and remind myself of all the times I've already dealt with it. And this is uncomfortable, but I know 
what this is and, and how to talk about it and how to take care of myself through it, you know, kind of reminding yourself of your own resilience, right? Mm-hmm. But never, never saying like, okay, now that's done. So now I'm done feeling sad, right? Right. We like to think of acceptance as a place that you arrive at, but I think it's more a way of being than a choice you make Mm -hmm. every day. Yes, I I agree with that. And you touched sort of briefly about the stages of grief. You know, there's the different steps. Like, Mm -hmm. is it different though for a special needs parent? Like we wouldn't necessarily follow like, what, you know, what the different stages are. Yeah. So the stages of grief, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote them and uh, she actually wrote them about the grief one experiences approaching their own death. Okay. And yeah. uh, And they've sort of gotten um, again, like pop psychologized. Right. And Mm -hmm. people, I think, believe that because they are called stages that she meant that you're supposed to move through them in like, stage one, then stage two, then stage three. She has, you know, since come out and said, my God, I wish I had called them anything but that because (laughs) that's not what I meant. Uh, That's not what the research shows us. She just, she meant more like phases of grief or Mm -hmm. even like seasons kinds of implies that you're going to move from one to the other. So that's not quite right. Um, But maybe more types of grief would be a more accurate name that sometimes you're going to have that really angry grief. And sometimes you're going to have that like, I'm sad, but I understand it acceptance grief. Mm -hmm. But it's not a linear process. It's not like, a you know, it's been presented in in the media as like, first, you're in denial, then you're angry, then you're bargaining, right? And that's not it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think for parents to know that it's, those are more like terms to help us explain the type of grief we're experiencing, Mm -hmm. right? More so than stages that you're meant to move through in a linear progression, but that that kind of sixth type of grief that I talked about, that, Mm -hmm. that finding meaning, that one does seem to be more of an end place to reach that when you hit the point of being able to talk about yes, this has been very difficult. The suffering was real. Here's how I grew from it as a person. Here's how it changed me. Mm-hmm. Here are things that I used to think were important that now no longer feel important to me, right? Like when you hit that place of being able to talk in that way, mm-hmm. that seems to be a bit more of a final destination. Okay. Now, like, as I mentioned earlier about the one lady who said, why would she celebrate her daughter's birthday? Cause it was the worst day of her life. Like at what point would you suggest to people that maybe they need to see somebody yeah. or should we all be seeing somebody? So I think the important thing too, is like, it's not just mentally healthy people who have kids with down syndrome, mm-hmm. like hearing that, you know, I can't help but wonder, was there some depression, you know, undiagnosed or diagnosed there beforehand. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is just, something new that feels extremely overwhelming and sad. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think it's important to know we all come into parenthood with, with our own stuff (laughs) already there. And then, you know, having, having a child uh, who's disabled or, or is unique in some other way, you know, can certainly trigger some of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, even for people who are mentally well before having kids, um, certainly just the adjustment, right. Can be really difficult. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, 
obviously I'm a therapist, so I'm biased. I would say counseling (laughs) can almost always be helpful because it's such a unique relationship that we don't have anywhere else in our life. Right. Mm -hmm. My clients don't have to worry about if, if they're going to say something and I'm going to judge them harshly for it or tell them they're wrong to feel that way. Or if I'm going to go tell somebody else that they said that. Right. Mm -hmm. So to have a dedicated professional listener who keeps your information confidential, who is listening exclusively for your benefit. Right. So I may have ideas during sessions of things that would benefit my client's kids, but I'm there to help them. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not there to be their child's therapist kind of, you know, down the line, I'm, I'm there to help my clients. So, you know, that's not what it's about. Right. So, and especially when you are a parent whose kid is going to lots of therapies, Mm -hmm. um, to have a place to unleash and talk through with someone you trust who you don't have to worry about, you know, they're going to see me across the Thanksgiving table and remember (laughs) all the things I said about how horrible my husband is or whatever, (laughs) you know, it's such a unique relationship. So I think if there are parents listening who are wondering if counseling could be helpful, the answer is probably yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now I know you're based out of North Carolina and so how can people find you? Mm -hmm. So people are welcome to visit my website. It's rosereef.com. I'm not actively blogging anymore, but I did for several years have um, blogs where uh, some were geared towards disabled adults and some were geared towards parents raising kids. So Mm -hmm. you can kind of, you know, look around and, and find posts that might be of interest to you. Lots of different resources there that people are welcome to access. And are you currently providing services? (laughs) I am. I, (laughs) I have a a full caseload at this point. So I am not taking on any new clients right now. That being said, if, if folks are listening and looking for a therapist in their area, um, you know, because it was a question I would get pretty frequently, people would contact me and say, do you know anybody in Kansas or, (laughs) you know, Korea, (laughs) like literally all over the world. Um, so I actually wrote a blog post. Uh, it's called finding a therapist for your child who has special needs. So if you just go in the search bar on my website and search finding a therapist, it'll, it'll pop up. Um, but uh, truly all the advice that I have in there about finding a therapist who understands your child would, would be the same advice for finding a therapist who understands the needs of parents. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's lots of ideas of how to, you know, reach out to professionals your child is already meeting with, how to reach out to, there are a handful of professional networks that folks like myself might belong to. So trying to find somebody that way, um, understanding kind of like psychology today is one example, but some of the big therapist directories and why the truth is, you know, somebody who's highly specialized might not actually be on those networks. And so it's better just to like search Google kind of thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, you know, cause those, those are pay to play. So a therapist has to pay to be included in those directories. And if you're really highly specialized, you, you probably don't need that as a referral source. Right. Um, so, you know, so again, all of this is outlined in that blog post. So if folks are looking to find someone in their area, that would be my top tip to them is to read that post and follow that advice. 
Well, thank you. That I yes, I think that will be very helpful. And Rose, I just really want to thank you so much for coming on today and and sharing, you know, your time and your expertise because I I found it very beneficial and and I hope others do too because it can be really challenging going through like these different stages in life with our kids and and trying to figure out a way to sort of I guess, handle it or cope with it, you know, and at the same time, trying to be a good parent to our kids. So thank you so much for, for your time. Thank you for having me on. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thanks, Rose. I really loved this conversation with Rose and I really learned a lot and I hope you did too. Here are some of my takeaways. Number one, grief changes as time goes on. Your grief at the time of diagnosis is different than it is now. I remember the time that I got Ainsley's diagnosis and it was absolutely life crushing. Obviously it's not that now and things are much different. And I hope that's the same for you. Number two, that the mental health of us parents raising kids with special needs is different from the mental health of parents raising neurotypical kids. So try not to compare. I know that's hard and can be challenging at times, but it's not the same. So don't compare. Number three, the challenge that we as special needs parents is to learn what those points that are especially painful for us and learn to anticipate them and give ourselves grace within them. I know that is so easy to say about giving grace, but I I think we really need to try to do that when we come to these points when we realize what is going on and to give ourselves grace and give us, give ourselves that time that we need. Number four, finding purpose and meaning in the grief and seeing ways that it has made us more adaptive, more resilient, and more aware of our own abilities as parents. You know, we are resilient. We are strong. I know that I am not the same person I was before I had Ainsley. I have often said that Ainsley has made me into the person I was always meant to be, you know, and I think resilient and strong says a lot about who I feel like I am. And I'm sure about who you are as well. Number five, diagnosis alone does not dictate what life's going to hold for you or your child. I know we all have these visions of what we thought we were, you know, going to have with our kids, but, you know, the diagnosis doesn't dictate that. It doesn't. And number six, the benefit of setting aside time to be sad on purpose. It's just one of my favorite ones. It's so simple. It's something that we can all do, whether it's just for one minute or five minutes in a day or whenever you need that. Just give yourself that time and allow yourself to be sad, that it's okay. You know, we can have our moment and be sad and then we can move on. So I really hope that you were able to get a lot out of this episode. Like I said, it's not something that's often talked about. It's almost like a taboo subject that we shouldn't talk about the grief over our children and their diagnosis, but I think it's real and it's there and also that it's okay. 
it's okay to have that grief. And it's all about how you manage that. So thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories. What's going on in your life? What are your child's wins? What's important to you? You can reach out to me at info at t21mom.com or you can also find me on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at trisomy21mama. It would also really mean a lot if you were to subscribe to the podcast and if you left a little review so that the algorithms can do their thing and make us a little more searchable for those in the Down Syndrome community. Keep on loving on your rocking kiddos and I'll see you next time.